When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today we sat down with Alex from Cosmic Skeptic. Best known for his atheism and veganism videos, he's a young philosopher from Britain, so we spoke to him about veganism from an ethicist point of view. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Alex, thank you so much for for joining us, my man. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's great to be here. We are. Uh, and, and the dog has immediately made an appearance. <laughs> She's right here. Slightly out of frame for me. Um, but so, yeah, you, you, I've seen a lot of your videos on veganism. They have, I don't know if they front ran, but they've certainly reinforced me. And I've, I've been a pescatarian for many years now, I guess three or four years. And uh, I lose track of why sometimes. And, and I often will come back to your videos and be like, okay, this is why I'm doing this because I, I do live in a world surrounded by friends and family that don't necessarily get it. So the first uh, question that I have is about pescatarianism. And I haven't seen it on your channel if you've covered it, but I'm curious how it fits into veganism. I know that you're full vegan. Why do you include fish? Why might I need to include fish? And does that also extend to mollusks and snails and crickets and uh things that we might consider of as the lower capability animal species yeah so we're really jumping right in yeah let's um, get into it man. The, our, so our audience the, is familiar with veganism just so you know we've talked about it at length um so this is why i wanted to dive right in that's good that's good i mean it doesn't require much introduction usually mm-hmm. the the although it, it it does need to be clarified i think that people uh, at least ostensibly are vegan for different reasons, right? Some people say that they're vegan for the environment. Some are ethical. Some do it for their diet. Um, I look at this from a philosophical perspective, from an ethical perspective. Uh, I'm a vegan because of the fact that I think we shouldn't be causing unnecessary suffering to animals. So this is the key thing to note when we have any of these kinds of discussions is that ethical veganism is about a minimization of suffering. So your question about which animals we should kind of include in our moral circle of, of consideration will depend solely on this question of sentience. Sentience being defined here as uh, a capacity for feeling pain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's generally considered, I think, that you know, certain, uh, certainly sea life like oysters and things pretty much can't feel pain. And I would say that if it's the case that they genuinely aren't sentient, that they can't feel pain, then I don't see any ethical qualm with eating them, right? I, I'd see them as uh, as as having the same level of consciousness as some kind of rock or something. If they can't feel suffering, it's not a problem to harm them because of the fact that it's impossible to harm something that can't be harmed if it can't suffer. Right. Mm. My position is that because, you know, there can be some gray areas here. It's not always entirely clear where that line of sentience needs to be drawn. It's not clear whether the sentience is something that's kind of like a circuit that's either on or off. It kind of switches on at some point in the evolutionary picture, or if it's more of a gradation 
not entirely clear. So what I like to do is give these animals the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm in a position where I can choose between eating an animal that may or may not feel pain versus you know, eating a plant-based diet as I, as I currently do that isn't going to uh, inflict the same amount of suffering, then I'll try to choose that which I have confidence will minimize the suffering. Right? It's kind of like being in a situation where you've got a sentient creature it's got a 50% chance of being inside this cardboard box and you've got to choose whether you want to stab the box or not. Mm-hmm. And if the thing, if the only thing you're going to get from stabbing that box is that you get to eat a nice meal or something, most people wouldn't want to stab the box. So it's not entirely clear where the line is drawn, but I think that we can say that, uh, you know, most evidence seems to suggest that fish have a, a level of cognition that we would like to, uh, correlate with sentience. Sentience is a very, it's an impossible thing to actually, identify within an individual because by definition, it's a subjective experience. Mm-hmm. All we can look for are indicators that other animals share similar uh, similar kind of demonstrable capacities to us, things like intelligence, things like sociability, things like reacting to stimuli, this kind of thing. We can't prove that they actually feel pain, but I can't prove that you feel pain. Sure. I can only prove that you react in the same way that I react to stimuli. And with fish, we show that fish are social creatures. They uh, can remember who to trust and who not to. They remember kind of which fish have been cooperative in the past, things like this. They have memories um, beyond the kind of myth that they don't, uh, which would imply that they have at least some level of cognition that I would like to correlate with suffering, um, especially given that they try to avoid uh, situations in which other animals, we would unanimously agree they're feeling suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, fish try to avoid those situations as well. So I think there's good evidence that they feel pain. But that's the, that's the key question here, mm-hmm. is that if we have an opportunity to minimize the amount of suffering that we're responsible for, that's what we should do. And veganism isn't just about kind of animal suffering. It's not like this thing that exists in isolation. It's just a natural extension of this general philosophy of minimizing suffering. That mm-hmm. includes human suffering too. It's, not, it, it's just a natural extension of what most people already agree upon which is that if we don't have to be responsible for suffering, we should abstain from it. So I don't know if you've ever seen this study, but I had a similar thought process as you when we were talking, what should we, what should our diet be? Basically, when we decided we were going to stray from the diet that we'd just grown up with. And one interesting thing I found was that there was a study that showed that fish, when you will poke them, let's say, they move in a reactionary way, but it doesn't light up the brain that's in their head. Much like if you poke a Venus flytrap, it might close. And I'm curious if that is the case, that they don't register it in their brain, like even if you were to poke them with a needle, let's say, that there's just something automated mm-hmm. in their skin that says, when you get the sensation, withdraw from it, but they don't register it. Would that change your opinion? Well, absolutely. And this is the useful thing about philosophy is that we can talk in conditionals like this. Mm-hmm. You know, if this were the case, would this be the case? And a lot of vegans don't like to talk in these terms. Somebody says, you know, if a cow couldn't feel pain, would you be okay with killing it? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, what are you talking about? Of course they can't, right? As a philosopher, you can very easily just say, well, yeah, if they can't feel pain, then it's not a problem. So I think that you know, if it is the case that when you, you know, prod a fish and they react, there's genuinely no kind of conscious experience happening there, then I don't think it would be a problem to do so. The issue that we need to be aware of is who has the burden of proof here, right? Mm. Because I think it shouldn't be a case of us kind of potentially harming an animal and then saying, well, look, I'm going to keep doing this until you can prove to me that what I'm doing is not actually harming them. Mm -hmm. I think it should be the other way around. I think it should be, you are not allowed to harm that animal until you prove unequivocally that it's not causing it suffering. You Mm. know what I mean? I think that's the way the proof should be around. So, you know, people like to kind of cite studies that point in different directions, but we need to understand that consciousness is, is an impossible thing to understand. I mean, most people can't even agree on a de- definition of consciousness uh, and sentience, let alone kind of 
uh, attributing it to to various animals. I think that in the case uh, of a fish, it's more difficult for us to kind of get on board with the idea that they feel pain because of the fact that they don't have the same kind of outward emotive mm-hmm. uh, responses that other animals do. But that isn't what we should be judging it on, right? We shouldn't care about a dog more than a fish because of the fact that you know a dog whimpers and a fish doesn't. Mm-hmm. It should be about the level of cognition, the level of sentience. Um, and these might not necessarily track each other. It might be that like a more intelligent creature is actually less capable of suffering or the suffering kind of uh, subjectively feels like less. Uh, in fact, that might be a that might be a, a kind of good line of argumentation. In fact, we might think that other animals being less intelligent beings, I mean, human beings artificially jumped to the top of the food chain because of our intelligence, right? Um, whereas other animals kind of not having that cognition uh, might be more reliant on their kind of sensory data, their immediate sensory data, the more sensory creatures. Nobody denies, for instance, that dogs experience smell much more acutely than we do mm. in a way that we couldn't possibly imagine. There's no reason to suggest the same thing couldn't be true of something like pain. These animals could actually feel pain in a far more acute way or manner than we could possibly imagine because they're more sensory creatures, even though they have a lesser cognitive ability. So it's, it, it's entirely unclear. If anybody claims that they've settled the issue on this, then they're probably being funded by someone or they probably don't know what they're talking about. And until we have some clarity on the issue, I think we should do our best to avoid the suffering. And this assumes that the only reason we shouldn't be eating fish is because of the direct impact on the fish. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's also the, the the disastrous environmental impact of the fishing industry, bearing in mind that the first victims of any environmental crisis are always going to be non-human animals. So it's not just about the, the direct effect of the fishing industry. Around about a half of all of the plastic in the Great Pacific um, garbage patch is fishing nets. Fishing nets, right? Like the fishing industry is, is terrible for the environment as well. So it's not just about the direct input, impact on the, on the fish. Mm-hmm. It's also about the effect of the fishing industry as a whole. I, I have a, even, I guess, zooming out a second because there's two questions, I guess, two directions that I'm um, being pulled towards. But I should, I think, go to the broader question, which is I'm totally on board for suffering as one of the core metrics that we make ethical decisions by, but it also seems insufficient, which is to say, if yeah, the, the question arises of, can I kill someone in the night in a way that makes them not suffer if they have no family and their family wouldn't suffer? And I haven't been able to really uh, codify and put into language what it is that makes life, or at least let's just keep it to human life and uh, other sorts of species of animals that we deem important, uh, unable to be killed even in a way that is painless to them that doesn't cause suffering. Can so I, what what gets added into that? Can I give a concrete example? Sure. So let's say there's, a, I don't know how big a pack of deer is, but let's say there's six deer that are, that's their family, right? So if you kill one, the other five will be sad. But what Charlie's saying mm-hmm. is he thinks it's unethical to sneak up in the middle of the night with six humans and in a coordinated throat slit, <laughs> you get all six. There's no suffering, right? Still seems like you wouldn't do it to dogs, so you might yeah. not want to do it to deer, but it, it extends beyond suffering. So yeah. it becomes more than just that metric. Uh, you'd, you'd be surprised what people are willing to do to dogs. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. made a, I made a video recently about, uh, about why I eat dogs and dog meat, and it was essentially a parody of kind of meat-eating arguments. And I got a lot of hate mail from people who genuinely thought that I was someone who ate dogs. And it's quite <laughs> funny to see these preachy, annoying, you know, how do you know if someone doesn't eat dogs? Don't worry, they'll tell you. It, it, was, it was very entertaining. Um, to answer to answer your question, the the point that I like to stress is that I I don't try to make an argument for veganism that's based upon kind of base ethical principles, and we can talk about them if we like. Mm-hmm. But my usual approach is to make an argument from consistency, which is just 
to say, I want to show that what you already believe is yeah. probably consistent with the ethical vegan worldview. So if you're somebody who thinks, so, so I mean, I, I suppose the correct answer to the question of whether or not it's okay is that it's as okay as it would be, for instance, to do it to dogs or, you know, potentially to do it to humans, right? If you had genuinely isolated humans, you're welcome to say that suffering is a necessary but not sufficient condition of moral worth, right? Mm -hmm. um, because if I killed a bunch of humans, even if they didn't feel any pain, there'd be something wrong with that. I think that would equally commit you to the view that it would be wrong to do it to a deer. Yep. However, you know, if you think that it's actually okay to kill a deer painlessly, then you might be committed to the view that it's actually okay to kill a human being painlessly, or at the very least that it's not bad for the human. And that's something I would assert. I would assert that as far as concerns the actual person being killed, if someone's killed painlessly and immediately die, it can't be bad for them to be dead, right? It can't be bad for you to be dead. That doesn't make any sense. We can only talk in terms of it being bad for other people, for society or something like that. And we can talk about it being bad in terms of the character of the person who does it. So you could say it makes you a bad person if you're the kind of person who would do that. That would be like a virtue ethics perspective. Mm -hmm. Ethics is based in the virtues that a person holds and how they act towards others and things like this. But I think that if you are someone who thinks that the only thing that matters is suffering, then you can invent these kind of convoluted thought experiments in which you can kind of do something that seems immoral, but in fact would be ethically permissible but they're so kind of ethically far-fetched that biting that bullet and accepting that as just an, a kind of unhappy consequence of your view is easier than accepting the kind of unhappy consequences of competing ethical theories, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. Well, actually, the, the direction that I go with it is not necessarily to justify any sort of, of meat-eating. It's, it's to uh, question beyond suffering. Because I, as, I, as I investigate what I see as suffering. It's does this thing move and make sounds similar to me, right? So if you if if you yelp, I will assume that you're suffering. And I think I I notice even with lobsters when I was a young boy, somebody boiled a lobster and and it was the sound of the air leaving, and I thought it was screaming, and that affected me much more than if I understood. Oh no, it wasn't screaming. So I, I recognize that even my perspective on suffering is so limited and so narrow to what. Uh, matching my own experience of suffering. The reason that I asked that particular question is because I'm not an antinatalist or anything, but then I, I then wonder if there is something precious about life uninterrupted, right, such that I couldn't kill a human being in its sleep painlessly, what ethical considerations do I need to give to plants or mm. grass? And I know it can go crazy as we go down that route. And then how does one interact in a world that requires me seemingly to kill in order to continue. Yeah, I was um, going to ask this, what happens when we figure <laughs> out that plants have consciousness and they experience pain? My And my sense is that consciousness, my personal sense is that consciousness exists on a spectrum. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, at some point I draw an arbitrary line. I'm curious what you think about this. I mean, th this one's actually incredibly easy. Uh, mm -hmm. The question of kind of plant sentience, which mm -hmm. most people kind of bring up in a frivolous manner, but mm -hmm. I can, you know, it can also be brought up very seriously. You know, mm -hmm. what do we do if we find out yeah, yeah. that, you know, plants are capable of suffering, plants have consciousness? The answer is still to eat the plants. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you why. It takes more plants to feed livestock than it takes to feed human beings, right? We are already growing enough crops to feed the world population three times over, but we're sending those crops to feed livestock. The majority of the crops that we grow, the plants that we grow are being fed to livestock. So no vegan should be under the illusion that they, that they are not responsible for any animal suffering. Of course we are. Everybody is. You, know, you step on insects when you, when you exit your house, mm -hmm. you, um, uh, to, to grow crops and plants, you need to destroy habitats uh, and kind of kind of flatten ground and stuff like this. So you're going to be responsible for animal suffering. It's about minimizing that suffering. So mm -hmm. if plants can feel pain, then we've got two options. We either grow those plants and eat those plants, causing some, uh, causing some plant suffering, 
or we grow even more plants to then cause those plants suffering so we can feed those plants to livestock so we can then cause the livestock to suffer and kill the livestock to then eat the meat right like we would still actually minimize the amount of suffering we're responsible for by eating the eating the plants directly now i agree with you this would be a really really difficult ethical problem if it were more like we had to choose between like you know killing animals and killing plants if plants could feel pain. I still think we'd err on the side of killing the plants because I think we'd agree that they at least have less sentience. But mm-hmm. even if they had, you know, the, even if we discovered that plants were, the, were the, like m- more capable of suffering than any other animal that we have, like plants are actually the most sensitive things that exist, the way to minimize the suffering we'd be responsible for would be to eat them directly still mm-hmm. rather than grow more, feed them to animals, kill the animals and eat the plants by proxy. Mm-hmm. That's so... Uh, I'm very interested in, and you can kind of see, and I think like you, um, my diet emerged out of broader ethical concerns, like in an attempt to be consistent with, with axioms that I hold about what is good and bad. And I think, I think also just a personal psychological attempt to be a good person, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and, I, and I've kind of come to the same place that you just described, which is life might, might be such that in 2020, it is impossible to not do harm, that the, the direct and second order consequences of being a human on the planet, even with the best attempt, is the suffering or the elimination of life of other sorts of things. And so I guess my question to, is then, what does it take to be a good person in that world? Is it, a, is it a wholehearted attempt to minimize suffering? Is there some sort of standard that one needs to live up to? And similarly, at what point can we say someone is a bad person that they've just thrown out ethical concern and may or maybe are good and bad antiquated ideas that, that don't really fit and I'm just being overly moralistic? I'm afraid I, I, I lost a bit of the question there due okay. to, to an internet connection. I missed, the, I missed just the beginning, but sure. I, I think we, we essentially asking about how, you know, we're, we're kind of by necessity of existing, mm-hmm. we're going to be causing some form of suffering. Yeah. And there's a question of like how much suffering we should be allowed to be responsible for. Yes, I guess I, I want, part of what motivates me is a selfish desire to be good. And that is my own psychological foible mm. probably of being raised and being told to be a good boy, right? So that is uh, not even as uh pure a desire as genuine goodness, but I want to fall into the good category and I presume many people do. So understanding that living will create what we would consider evil in the sense that, you know, you're causing suffering, but it seems almost inevitable. Can people be then divided into groups of good and bad or less good and bad? How do we consider that? Or are these moral figures antiquated ideas of a world where one could be perfectly good and perfectly evil? And actually life is much more complicated than that. Mm. Well, of course, you know, life is famously very complicated, um, but there are a few things that we need to tease out. Like, uh, you know, we have to be careful throwing around the word evil, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, you know, everyone's going to be responsible for what we would call evil, that is causing suffering. I don't think we call it evil when someone necessarily causes suffering. When someone causes suffering that they can't help, I don't think you'd call it evil, right? For, trivially, somebody could accidentally cause some suffering. I could fall into somebody and push them into the road. I don't think you call me evil for doing so. Clearly, evil has a more um, kind of motivated connotation. It has to have kind of intention behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, you also bring up the interesting question of whether there can actually be such things as a, as a, as a truly altruistic act, right? A, a, an act that is truly only for the benefit of other people. You say that, you know, I want to be a good person. I do this thing out of a selfish desire to be good. You might actually be more connected to a theory that thinks, you know, suffering and, and pleasure is the basis of ethics than you think, because what you're essentially saying there is that, Yes, I like to do what's good, 
that's the thing. Like I like to do what's good. I do it because I like it because it does something for me because I, how, like, how do we define what a good person is? Generally speaking, it's the kind of person who, you know, if they run into a, uh, into a burning building to save a child, right. And they come out and everyone's calling them a hero and they say, no, 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 it's, it's I, you know, I had to do it. I had mm -hmm. to, I couldn't not. Right. And people say, wow, that's such a good thing. That makes you such a good person. But what are they saying there? They're saying, oh, I, I did this for my sake. Right. Because, you know, I would have suffered if, if I let that baby burn in the, in, in the burning room. So yeah, I had to run in there because, you know, I couldn't not. That's just an admission of you saying that you're doing it for your own sake. Right. Mm -hmm. But we think that that's what makes someone really, really good. Right. So I don't think it's, it, it it's quite as kind of simple as people often think it is. Um, but yeah, I think to answer the kind of the second implication of the question here, which is that we're always responsible for suffering, the kind of vegan philosophy here, the ethical vegan philosophy here is that we should minimize unnecessary suffering to the highest degree that we can. Now, of course, it's, it's very difficult to define strictly what is necessary and what's mm -hmm. unnecessary. But again, we're kind of dealing with a, with an issue of blurred lines as, as applies to the vegan conversation. I might say I'm not entirely, sure how much suffering is actually necessary to avoid to be a good person. But I know that avoiding forcing a pig into a gas chamber is definitely sure. on one side of the fence, right? I'm not sure exactly where the line is, but we can say that there are certain things that we should definitely be avoiding. Um, I think the best way to look at it is probably from an individual act-based perspective. In any action you're taking, try to choose the, the course of action that will require the least amount of suffering. Mm. And what that means is that in, instead of now thinking of it in terms of, let's kind of tally up all of the suffering that someone's responsible for all of their life. And if it goes over a certain barrier, they're now evil. They're on the bad side. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like, as long as that person in a majority of situations chose the kind of course of action available to them that caused the least amount of suffering that they could, you know, then I think that that's probably uh, a good way of defining what a good person is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I guess, and, and this, I'm 100% on board and I'm not going to go back to eating meat. I, I, I was a philosophy major and I'm interested in the edge cases. Uh, you know, that's just what fascinates me about these sorts of conversations. Yeah. So I, I think about that box that you just described and I think about putting a bunch of plants into it and maybe it's not 50%, but maybe it's a 1% chance that there's some sort of sentience in these plants. And then I think, okay, I could have a full plate of spinach or a half plate and I could live on starvation rations. And then there's two forms of my life. One where I cause twice as much suffering to plants around me and one where I, I, eat the bare minimum. Uh, it, it's, mm. it seems to me, and again, I, I'm not planning, I'm not using this to justify any sort of uh, purchasing from slaughterhouses. I'm very much on like, this yeah. one is clearly on the other side. Uh, I am noticing in my life that it, I'm, I'm judgmental, I guess is what I'm saying, like good, bad. And it seems to me that as I really get into the nitty gritty, it needs to be something that is transcended because it is almost an impossible game. Uh, and I don't know what is on the other side of good and bad. And I definitely will try to stay to the one side of uh, slaughterhouses <laughs> and purchasing from them. But but I just recognize that, oh, wow, you could have a, a plant eater that's twice as bad as another plant eater who gotta, just starves himself. You got to go for calorically dense nuts <laughs> because one nut is like 30 pieces of spinach. Yeah, so if you're eating a salad and I'm eating nuts, you're 30 times as evil as I am. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah. Um, I, I would actually just probably accept your premise that we do need to basically abandon this idea that we can kind of cumulatively look at someone's life and say, well, they're a bad person. It, yeah. It's just, it's never that simple, right? The idea of kind of just categorizing people into good and bad, it doesn't really work like that, right? Good and bad are essentially relative concepts when applied to kind of the way someone lives their life. Nobody is morally perfect, mm -hmm. as it were. 
Um, and so kind of goodness and badness as applies to a person is always going to be, you know, like relative. I'm not saying goodness and badness as concepts are relative. I'm not advocating moral relativism here. I'm just saying that, you know, whether or not someone fits the bill will be kind of determined by their culture. You know, a lot of people think that Thomas Jefferson was a good person relative mm -hmm. to his um, time period, but the man was a slave owner and a racist, right? Like mm -hmm. things that we would consider to be inexcusably um you know, morally blind today. It, it, it's obviously kind of a relative judgment, but I think rather than arguing over whether someone like Thomas Jefferson was a good or a bad person, we should argue about the goodness and badness of particular acts, right? Because this kind of conversation doesn't really hold any relevance. I mean, what, what does it actually matter for a discussion of ethics, whether a person is good or bad? Well, what we should be interested in is the actions we can take to, to kind of live a good life or, or continue kind of reducing suffering or whatever it may be. We shouldn't be so interested in kind of labeling People sure. is good and bad. I agree. That, I, that, that comes right. from an atheist perspective, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, any, and we're on the same page. Anyone who's religious is going to hear that and go, "That's the whole point of life. <laughs> All, life is literally a trial phase to weigh if you're good or bad." Mm -hmm. And I guess I have a little bit of that. That um, I'm not religious overtly, but I suppose some of that religiosity has permeated my, mm. you know, good, bad, heaven, hell, right, wrong mentality. Yeah, I mean, it it certainly does. But then it's also true that uh, the, the majority of people who kind of have this conception that like religion just tells you that, you know, you're, you're here to, uh, as a trial to find out if you're good or bad. And it's basically kind of a, a game to see if we'll get into heaven. Like uh, that's not a position that would be held by like serious you know, religious scholars, for instance, they think mm -hmm. that goodness and badness is not defined by kind of what's going to get you into heaven per se. It's to do with like the nature of God. God is good by a nature. And so doing things which are kind of um, in accordance with what a human being should properly do as determined by God is good, regardless of whether it gets you into heaven or not. And that people shouldn't be motivated to goodness or badness by heaven but by the fact that it's what is proper of a human being or something, right? Like the, the difficulty is that we're talking about practical ethics when we talk about something like veganism. And practical ethics has to sit on top of meta-ethics. Meta-ethics being the more fundamental discussion of what is good? What does goodness mean? What's badness? Mm -hmm. What's it all grounded in? Um, and you can only really have one conversation at a time because they both take up too much time, right? And if you're going to talk about practical ethics, it's always going to be true that there's going to be someone listening who's going to say, well, that just doesn't apply to my worldview. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of the difficulty of, of, of doing ethics. Um, so you're right. Like, you know, there are many religious people who would absolutely shirk at this idea that ethics is grounded in suffering. It's like mm -hmm. what ethics is grounded in just pleasure, pain, that kind of stuff. Are you suggesting that it seriously might be okay to kill an innocent person if they don't feel suffering or something like that? These thoughts are going to kind of rage through their heads and there are answers to those questions. Um, but yeah, you're never going to be able to have an ethical discussion that, that satisfies everyone in the room. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm going in so many different directions. I suppose I'm more of the, I'm most fascinated by meta-ethics. And I'll, and I'll, just to mm. keep this particular question alive, and I'm curious how you think about it, uh, if it, yeah, I guess I've raised the specter that it is the case that there's some sentience in plants, right? And, and there then is the option for you as someone who eats plants to eat half as much which might yeah. be important. And again, forget whether it makes you a good or a bad person. It could mm. be doubling the suffering of plants. Is that is that a bridge too far for you? Is that something worth considering? How do we even know? And then I wonder in 1000 years, will they then look back on us and be like, those people were, <laughs> they were eating all of those plants. Like, how dare they? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of, I'm glad you circle back to the specific question because I didn't want to kind of forget to address it directly. Yeah. Um, what we're really tapping into is the, um, I suppose the the demanding this objection to consequentialist ethics, generally mm -hmm. speaking, this this it's an objection in the form of saying that, like 
there's always something you can do that makes mm. things a little bit better that don't actually require that much of a sacrifice. You know, like, although, yeah, I'm, I'm a video producer, so it's probably a good idea that I have an SM7B and so do you both. Like, mm -hmm this wouldn't be a failure of an interview if I had a slightly cheaper microphone, mm -hmm. right? And I could have taken that money and done something better with it and sure. had a better consequence, caused mm -hmm. less suffering by donating it to charity. And the question is like, how far are we allowed to take that? Now, mm -hmm. with the question of like food and, and veganism, most vegans will agree that uh, essentially sustainable health is the, is the bar here. Um, but this isn't so much like a meta-ethical position. It's just a practical position so that we can move the conversation forward. Mm -hmm. We'll basically say that like, so long as you can be healthy with what you're eating, that's that's what's justifiable. Everything kind of above that. Um, so, so like if, if you need to cause some kind of suffering because it's necessary, then like that's fine. Mm -hmm. But the moment that you like are able to be healthy, right? If you cause any suffering beyond that, you're doing something immoral. Um, the problem is, as you say, like, okay, so let's say you're, you're like perfectly healthy, right? You could maybe like, you could maybe like live with a slight iron deficiency. Right? It's not something you'd like advocate, right? But yeah. like, you know, if we're talking about meta ethics, like you could, you could do it. You know what I mean? Sure. And by doing so, you know, maybe by eating slightly less plants or eating whatever diet you have, by eating a bit less, you're freeing up a bit of land, you're saving a bit of water, all of this kind of stuff. And like, although it is a cost to you at this point, it's not much of a cost. Um, the, the, like, I think for, because this is a difficult question to answer, Practically, I like to say, no, like your obligation only goes as far as like staying healthy does, right? But there is an interesting kind of meta-ethical question about like, should you like break your arm if, if it's going to like save a child from dying or yeah. something? Mm -hmm. the, the, the way to kind of entertain this question, I think, is through the eyes of um, the most famous way that this, this problem is usually phased, uh, phrased is through the words of Peter Singer, who in his essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality, asks people to imagine a, uh, you're kind of walking down the road and yeah. you come across a really shallow pond, right? You're probably, you'll probably be familiar with this. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure yeah, you, your audience might be too. It's a very famous thought experiment. Um, and you, you come to notice that there's a child drowning in the pond, right? And you think to yourself, well, like I could save this child very easily, but it would like ruin my shoes. I'd have to get some new shoes that cost mm -hmm. me like a hundred dollars, right? And so I don't save the child. I just walk on with my day. You would think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a moral monster for doing this. You'd think I'm the most evil person in the world. But isn't that exactly what we do every time we refuse to give $100 to charity? Mm -hmm. right? Because there's a child not drowning in front of me, but dying on the other side of the, uh, on the, other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And I say, no, I'm not going to give up that $100 to save their life because I want to you know, buy some shoes or something. Mm -hmm. It seems really unethical. And Peter Singer's point is to say, well, actually, these situations are the same. If you'd save the drowning child, you should give your money to charity. But then someone comes along and says, well, hold on, like this, th there's like an endless supply of people dying, of suffering that you could be, you know, responsible for mitigating. Yeah. Endless, endless, endless supply. Um, so yeah, you could like, you know, refuse to buy shoes, uh, downsize your house, you know, refuse to have a kid because it's going to, you know, contribute to, it's going to cost more money and contribute to overpopulation. Uh, you could sell all of your clothes except maybe a t-shirt, you know, why, why not, why not kind of stop shaving your face? Because the, the cost of a razor mm -hmm. could be spent buying a malaria net and saving someone um, across the world from dying of malaria. Sure. And the objection essentially is that like, surely at some point we have to say, no, you are actually allowed to engage in even trivial things like buying a nice pair of shoes, shaving your face, going to the theater. Because if we don't allow that, then we can't allow any of it. And everybody just has to live in absolute abject misery um, so long as that misery doesn't quite dip below the amount of <laughs> suffering they're responsible for saving. Mm -hmm. So 
I think a good way around this is to say that we should be responsible, like we should be responsible for the suffering that we're causing rather than the suffering that we're avoiding. We should say that the, the gray area kind of lies in like when, when there's an opportunity to save someone from suffering, like saving the drowning child, it can often be a, a gray area of, of how far that applies. But if you're directly responsible for the suffering, that's a different story. You might not have an obligation to send money to save a child from dying in, in Ethiopia, but you do have an obligation to refrain from putting some cyanide in the post and sending it to them and killing them, right? So the mm-hmm. first thing we need to do is make sure we're, we prevent ourselves from being responsible for that kind of suffering. So would that yes, thought process allow you to walk past the kid in the pond so as to not ruin your shoes because you didn't put the kid in the pond? I don't think so. I'm, I'm not saying that... Um, I'm not saying that... you you should never be obligated to you know, mm-hmm. prevent suffering when you can. I'm just saying that like, it's usually, usually where the gray areas exist, it's in those areas of prevention rather than where mm-hmm. you've actually caused. Oh, sorry. I'm not saying you should walk past, but I'm saying wouldn't that thought process allow someone to walk past? Yes, many times. I mean, and that's the, that's the thought experiment is that there's 10 million ponds with 10 million this children everywhere so, you so go. Not, I'm not saying you're <laughs> encouraging people to walk past, but I'm saying you can't saying it's permissible, judge yes. people for walking past. That's not past. what I'm saying. Because I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that it's, it's always permissible to mm-hmm. refuse to save someone. I'm saying that it's, it's sometimes, depending on the situation, probably permissible. But the, the thing that we have to make sure we're doing is being consistent. So with Peter Singer's example, he says, you know, if you'd save the drowning child, you should donate to charity. It's like, it doesn't quite work. Let's actually make the situations identical. There's a paper that was written called um, something like, sometimes it's okay to let the let the child drown or something mm-hmm. like that. So it's basically kind of the, the, the conclusion that you'd want to kind of avoid like the plague. But he phrases it by saying this. He says, well, look, imagine now that you're kind of on your way to work or whatever. Um, I, I think the exact way that he frames it is says that there are some hackers who have broken into your bank account and they're taking out uh, maybe like $5 or $100, whatever it is, every five minutes, right? So every, every five minutes, they're taking out, say, $100. Um, and because of some legal loophole, there's nothing the bank can do to stop them. Um, so the only way to stop them is you have to actually go to the bank and you know, freeze your account. Uh, the pro- and, and once the money's run out of your account, the bank will just start seizing your assets up to the value of $100, $100 every single five minutes until you go to the bank and stop it. So you get up, you go to the bank, but just as you're about to get into the bank, you notice that there is this, this ocean of drowning children, just endless, endless, endless drown- drowning children. And it takes exactly five minutes to save one of those, ch- to, to, to save one of those children, mm-hmm. right? So probably you, you should stop and save some of the children, right? Because it's like, yeah, you're going to delay yourself from shutting your bank. You're going to lose a few hundred dollars, but you should save the, save the children. But how many children should you save? Mm-hmm. Like how, how far are we actually going to allow, uh, allow, allow this to happen? And the conclusion of the essay is to say that like Peter Singer's objection seems to, seems to imply, or Peter Singer's argument seems to imply that you should basically let the bank seize all of your assets right up until the moment when you are like completely desolate just completely desolate, as desolate as the, as the drowning children are, then you're allowed to kind of think for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because you should always, if you, you, you know, if you can prevent someone else's suffering without sacrificing something considerably important of your, of yours, you should always do it. But this guy says, look, clearly we, we, we wouldn't say it's permissible to just walk past the children. We wouldn't say you, you, you can just save none of the children and go and save your money. But equally, we wouldn't say that they have an obligation to let the banks seize their house, seize their car, you know, take everything away from them. Um, there needs to be a point at which we say, actually, 
yeah, no, now I'm, now I'm going to stop saving these, these children and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of stop my money from taking it out of the bank. Now, the next question is this, like we could probably agree that when the bank starts kind of taking the house, taking the car, these necessities, as it were, you know, you're allowed to, you're allowed to put that to a stop. You're allowed to say, okay, I can't save any more children. They're going to take my house. I've got to go and shut it down. But like, what about more trivial things? What if it's like, you know, the money that, that you were going to spend going out for dinner or something? It's like, it seems like you shouldn't allow a child to die for that. But like, imagine this situation happens every single day. Every single day of your life, these children are dying mm-hmm. and you have to go to the bank to stop it every single day. Are you, for the rest of your life, are you never, ever allowed to ever go out for dinner again? Are you never, ever allowed to do any unnecessary purchase? You can't buy yourself new shoes. You can't get married to your, to your fiance. You can't because you can't afford it. And, and because you're spending all of your time saving these children. I think people would say, no, that's not fair. Like even, even in terms of like trivial things, there is a point at which you're able to say, I'm actually allowed to, to permit this, this significant amount of suffering for the sake of, you know, for the sake of something that I just, that I just want to do. But the key point is that it's about like finding balance here, right? Mm-hmm. You can't let all of the children die, but you shouldn't be obligated to try and save all of, all of the children at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems, it seems, and I, moral philosophers have been working through, I think a world, essentially the problem is there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the world. And that's, that's only if we mm. include the suffering that we often think of as being avoidable. But the animal kingdom is quite obviously full of suffering without our inclusion in it, right? If you ever go but to right. nature is lit, it's it's horrifying what these animals do to one another in order to get a meal. Um, and it seems like moral philosophers are really struggling. And really what that thought experiment does as I think about it is it, it tries to force consistency such that you're removing the distance between America and yeah. Africa or elsewhere. Um, but to me, it only just marks that morality as it is often used is more of a societal tool than it is a, a, a good with a capital G, right? What we're trying to find is what what creates a cohesive society that, that our own axioms keep make consistent and uh, copacetic for us. But even, even as you were discussing it, I think you were appropriately saying, what are you allowed to do? It's more ab- about what we permit of one another than it is the pursuit of good with a capital G or, or the avoidance of evil or things like that, which I think is totally fine. Um, I also think these thought processes are how people justify selfishness or causing suffering, which is to say, and by people, I mean myself, by the way, (laughs) it's it's, uh, (laughs) it's how you could justify giving no money to charity or it's how you could justify eating cows because you did a blood test and it turns out that genetically you're predisposed to eating meat. Or there's mm-hmm. people who go on the carnivore diet and it helps them with their anxiety and depression. So yeah. in terms of perfect health, they should be killing animals constantly. So I think, and then uh, I guess all I'm saying is that the, the thought process that we just went through says all of that is okay. Do- donating very little to charity, eating cows if you think it makes you healthier than eating plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I sit here, I'm not sure I like the conclusions and I'm not sure... I guess where I disagree in the story. Well, th- th- that's only true if you think that it's okay to to walk past the ch- the essay that I mentioned. And I think most people who read it would agree is is not the case, right? We don't in this situation with the bank seizing your assets every day. We don't say that you can just ignore all of the suffering. That you can just kind of you know maybe help one child out and be done with it. We say no. There's a there's a very serious obligation to actually you know 
save a considerable amount of, of the suffering that you can. We're just saying that it, it doesn't, um, that it's, that it's not entirely clear kind of how far it stretches. So mm. like, it, it's not like, Hey, this is an excuse for you to charity. It's a way of you simultaneously holding that I should be giving significantly to charity, but also kind of allowing yourself to, to, to not have to give literally everything you own. Right. It, it's not that the conclusion of the, uh, of the thought experiment there is not that we should be able Did we lose you for a second? No, we don't have an obligation to save absolutely every single one of them because we can't. Sorry. Did, we, I, did, we, I, did you lose me? Yes, just for a second. We were hearing we were hearing you wind down, but I, I think I understood where you were headed with that. Sure. I'm going to yeah. take my phone off the Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, we'll disconnect everything from Wi-Fi. It's, prob- it's probably more my end than your end. My, my internet is quite unreliable at the moment. I'm supposed to be uh, at St. John's College um, in Oxford but, City, but unfortunately I'm stuck at home because they won't have <laughs> us back. Yeah. Um, no, I guess, and just to sort of underline, I think we, uh, what's, what's interesting is that we're, we're, we're just playing devil's advocate for one another. And I don't think that you're obligated to defend the, the pond analogy. And I think Ben probably agrees with it as do I, in many ways, I'm, I'm noticing though, that there are, as, as you, uh, recognized a lot of fudge words, you know, what is necessary, what is health? And, mm. and I think Ben's I think point, I Ben's think point was arguments of convenience, I guess is what I'm saying, which is to say, so maybe I'm someone who gives 1% of my income a year Mm -hmm. and you would like for everyone to give, let's just say 10%. And you say, Hey, why do you only give 1%? And I go, well, I'm not obligated to not buy the shoes and go to dinner Mm -hmm. and get the latest iPhone and get a car that I can't, you know, I have a regular job, but I get a BMW i8 and like, I'm not obligated to do that because of this Peter Schiff metaphor not Peter Schiff, Peter, mm -hmm. Peter Singer, Peter Singer, because I very different dudes (laughs) because I donate 1%. You know, mm-hmm. I'm doing my part and you, you, I imagine most people go, whoa, it'd be nice for you to yeah. maybe not have a $150,000 car if you can only afford to give $10 to charity yeah. or maybe get a $80,000 car, which is still <laughs> insanely expensive and give more than $10 to charity. And they go, well, you know, I think I'm doing my part. And similarly to the plant, it's like, oh, let's, let's go to perfect health. And now you're in an argument with whether you can have perfect health as a vegan. And mm-hmm. I imagine that there's a lot of people that are smarter than I who could make strong arguments as to why for their specific blood type, body type, uh, whatever it might be, that cow is an integral part of that. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's all. As I'm look, walking through these philosophical conversations, I can just see where one could hop in and use the thought process yeah. to make an argument of convenience. I, I think I think I see the way that, to me, makes it sort of come together, which is if you're using these thought experiments as a bare limit on what you must do and you genuinely do not care about the kid in the pond, you will find a way to save as few children in the ponds as possible. That's what I'm saying. And just, exactly. So if that's what morality is going to become is some sort of social... Is, is merely what it is to become, some sort of social enforcement mechanism on the bare minimum that you must do in order to not be excommunicated from society, that's what you'll get. But I think the goal is internally to extend the, your circle of concern farther mm-hmm. such that the children are compelling to you by themselves. And it's it's not a sacrifice to downgrade from the $150,000 car. It is a it is a, a loving, happy decision that one has made. And that I guess the goal for me is to become a person who is happier and happier to personally have less 
and less because I am genuinely made mm. happy by what I'm able to spread. And that yeah. seems like moral evolution as opposed to what I've considered in the past, which is like, what do I have to do even though it fuck I don't like it? Right. <laughs> well, I think I guess the, the reason I think about it is because we're all we all have our YouTube channels and we all have people who listen to us and you mm. would like to be the metaphor I always use is uh, if you're in a world where there's slavery, you'd like to be on the forefront of helping, helping slavery not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then I think, well, what arguments mm. are going to be persuasive? And so that's the lens I'm look. I'm viewing this through, I guess, is let's say I do eat meat or let's yeah. say I don't donate to charity. Is this persuasive? And I struggle to find anything. I've even had conversations where at the end of the day, the person's like, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I'm not going to change my behavior, but I so have no counter arguments. Yeah. I go, Maybe this is a good direction okay. for us to head. Is, is <laughs> Here we are. You've had a ton of these conversations, I'm sure. What is persuasive when it when it comes to veganism and increasing one's ethical concern such that mm. it inconveniences oneself? Um, I, I'm I'm afraid there there are about as many different ways to convince people as there are different people, right? Mm. Um, but I, I think you're right to to pick up on this point that you did a second ago. There are kind of two ways of thinking about the way we're doing ethics here. Mm -hmm. One of which is like people saying that the thought that the, the reason that we have these discussions, the reason we bring up these thought experiments is so that I can kind of construct a cop out to allow me to continue conveniently uh, and, and kind of ethically justifying it. If that's what you think that we're kind of doing here, then and we're not having the same conversation because I think like the reason I'm doing this is to find out what's actually, you know, ethically true if there is such a thing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not just about constructing a functional system that we can use to kind of say that we're allowed to do this, we're allowed to do that. It's like, I just actually want to know the truth of the matter. Like, mm -hmm. is there an actual true answer to the question of whether or not this thing is right or wrong? Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to convincing people, the, the, the point to make is that like, I'm just trying to get people to be consistent, right? Now, one of the biggest problems that we face is when someone says, I agree with you, but I'm just not motivated to change. Mm -hmm. But this isn't a problem that's unique to veganism, even though it's the only situation in which I, I tend to hear it brought up. It would be the same thing if, if you were talking with somebody who believed something else that you thought was unethical, like pick anything you think is unethical, take racism or something, and you convince somebody that it's, that it's baseless, doesn't make any sense. And they turn around and say, you know what, you're right, but I'm just, I'm just still going to be a racist. Like, there's not really much you can do there. All the ethicist can do is basically say, I think you're wrong. Like, I think what you're doing is ethically wrong. So yeah, like... What I like to do is kind of reframe the way in which I'm talking about people being right and wrong. Not to kind of mean ethically right or wrong here, but like right in terms of correct or wrong in terms of incorrect. Mm -hmm. So here's here's what I find is convincing, right? I, I say this, like you already believe that it's wrong to put certain types of animals into gas chambers, you know, for instance, human beings. Yeah. A lot of people think it would be wrong to do it to dogs as well, which is an easier starting point. Mm -hmm. Um 
because you know there's there's less of an argument that needs to be made here. Like if somebody thinks that it's wrong to put a dog into a gas chamber because you know of the taste of their flesh or something, which is how eighty six percent of pigs are killed in my country at least mm. uh, for 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 meat um, is by is by gassing them in a chamber of carbon dioxide, which is an incredibly painful way to go. So if we think it would be wrong to do it to a dog, the question kind of of ethics isn't necessary anymore because we we just kind of agree on this basic ethical ethical principle. And you might believe it for different reasons than me, but we both believe it's wrong to put the dog in the gas chamber. Mm -hmm. The question then simply becomes like, how like a pig would that dog have to be, and in what ways to make it okay to have them in that gas chamber? Right? Like if I if I change the 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 dog's skin color so it's now pink and we give it a curly tail, like. It's got the same intelligence as a pig, looks like a pig, talks like a pig. Would you still think it's wrong? Like, you won't really be able to find the descriptive difference. Now, we can actually extend this argument to human beings as well, right? Because some people would say, well, you know, some people do kill dogs for food. I think it's kind of okay or whatever. Um, put it this way, right? If we put a human being into a gas chamber, it would be wrong, so wrong, in fact, that it's evocative of one of the worst evils in human history, right? Mm -hmm. But if we put a pig into a gas chamber, then uh, it's the way that many people get their breakfast. Now, obviously, humans and pigs are very, very different creatures. But the question to ask is specifically, how are they different? Like, in what specific ways are they different? And which of those different ways is morally relevant, right? So, if we took the human being and we took the human being's arms and turned them into legs, is it now okay to put that human being in the gas chamber? Well, no, clearly not, right? If I change the human being's skin color, so now, now they've got pink skin, right? Is it now morally okay to put them in a gas chamber? Still no, right? Obviously not. That's, not. that's not relevant. Okay, what if I take that human being and I lower their intelligence to the level of a pig, say? Can I now put them in the gas chamber? No, we certainly can't justify killing people on the basis of their intelligence. You can't say that because someone's got less intelligence, they're, they're, you know, they've got less moral worth because of it. But it's like, okay, so now we've got like this human being that we've now turned into a being that has like the brain of a pig, as intelligent as a pig, it kind of looks like a pig. It's got a tail like a pig, it's got four legs and everything. You've basically now got this being that is identical to a pig, right? But you haven't found a point at which you say, okay, now it's okay to put them in the gas chamber. So you've got this thing, which is a, essentially a pig, that you're still saying, no, no, it's still not okay to put them in the gas chamber. But you've got an identical creature over here that we, you know, originally at the beginning of this say, well, this one's okay to put in the gas chamber because that's how people get their breakfast. The point, to, the point to make is that, like, it's not really a moral discussion that we're having anymore. It's that you've got a descriptive inconsistency, right? Because, because I've kind of walked you through metamorphizing this human being into a pig. And at no point have you stopped and said, okay, now it's okay to put them in the gas chamber. You know, when you lower their intelligence, that's what makes it okay to put them in the gas chamber. Like that hasn't happened. But now you've got this, this, this thing, which is identical to a pig that you say is still wrong to put in a gas chamber. And what that means is that you're simultaneously saying that it would be wrong to put this being, which is identical to a pig into a gas chamber at the same time as saying that this identical creature, it's fine to put into a gas chamber. That's an inconsistency. You're saying it's both okay and not okay to put this being into a gas chamber. You're mm -hmm. wrong, not morally speaking, but like you're, you're incorrect. Like logically speaking, that contradicts. So like, that's usually where I would start is Got to it. say the, the question you have to answer is that if you already think it's wrong to put, say, a human being into a gas chamber, you, you have to answer like how like a pig and in what way would that human being have to be to make it okay to put them in the gas chamber? If you can't answer that question, then you can't 
treat them that ethically differently, if you see what I'm saying. Sure. So I, I follow very, very closely, and I've had similar arguments and discussions with people, and perhaps I, I turn them into arguments because that's, <laughs> that's my habit. Um, but I will say what I've found is that for change making, I find that very ineffective. Yeah, like perhaps, mm. perhaps only with my philosopher friends um, and with the broad swath of the population, even the people that love me the most, it's like, yeah. And then they will just go and order whatever they feel like yeah. in yeah. three seconds. So I, I actually wanted to point out, I don't know if you're doing it consciously, but I think one thing that your videos do very well is you cut in like two to three seconds of footage of these gas chambers and of the way that this actually happens. And mm. as I, the part of the reason that I watch your videos is not to hear you say the arguments that I'm familiar with. It's for those two to three seconds of like, oh, yeah, this is what it is in a visceral, emotional way. And when I do talk to people that have gone vegan, I found out one of the most common reasons is cowspiracy, which is a mm. documentary where the guy, he was totally a vegan before, but he like he baby steps you all the way there in this pretend yeah. way and show and it's it's very emotionally impactful. So I'm just curious if, if you are aware mm. that you're sort of doing that with the imagery or if that's something that just kind of happened. I find that you're at this Goldilocks zone of like, if I ask people to sit down and say, let's watch Dominion, the Joaquin Phoenix expose on slaughterhouses. They're like, no way. <laughs> but if I'm like, hey, check out this nine minute video. Eight of it has this has this very eloquent British dude. And one minute interspersed throughout is some horrible imagery. Yeah. They're more likely to watch that and be moved by it. So I'm curious if you've seen anything like that in terms of persuasiveness that it's not just logic, but there's something else that needs to be in place. Yeah, well, that's precisely the problem is that logic alone doesn't tend to motivate. The reason why I have to rely on logic is because there are, there are kind of two levels of convincingness here, right? Mm -hmm. There's being convinced in terms of thinking that something is like ethically correct. And there's being convinced in the sense of kind of actually acting in accordance with it. So you're more interested in the second here. Mm -hmm. The reason I began with this is to say that like, because I'm I'm essentially a philosopher, right? Yeah. Like my, my channel is a philosophy channel. Most of the people watching are interested in philosophical argument. So yeah. now I could show them a bunch of footage and say, this is obviously horrible because clearly like if you, if you look at what we're currently doing to animals, uh, like, you know, in terms of our industry standard practices and you're not disgusted and upset by it, then there's something wrong with you, right? It's, it's very clear that like, there's a very strong emotional um, effect of presenting this footage. However, if I present it to my audience, mm -hmm. half of them are going to turn around and say, well, yeah, no, you're right. Like, I feel horrible about this, but like, you know, I don't want an argument that's based on emotion. Sure. I don't want to, I don't want, that's a fallacy to appeal to emotion. I want something based on logic and mm -hmm. facts, right? So for them, I say, all right, well, let me convince you with this argument. You're just yeah. descriptively incorrect. And then they can, that person can then go, okay, I already agreed that it was emotionally compelling. Mm -hmm. Now I see the logic. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. Got it. There are some people who do the exact opposite. They say, well, yeah, I agree that it's logically true, but there's no like emotional pull for me. Mm -hmm. For them, for those people, I then say, well, look, if you if you need some emotional um, input, then yeah, look at this footage. So I like to make sure that it's, it's at least present, so it's there for those people. But I can't rely on it because otherwise, people would accuse me quite rightfully of just appealing to emotion. You know, mm -hmm. like an argument for veganism might consist in saying, "Come on, man, look at the poor cows. Don't hurt the cows. Don't hurt the pigs. It sucks so much." And yeah, that might convince someone to go vegan. Sure. But like somebody who's coming at it from an from a kind of philosophy of ethics perspective isn't going to be very impressed. So I'm glad to hear that you think I've kind of struck a balance there because that's essentially what I'm trying to do. So I'll get criticism either way. If yeah. I show the footage, people say it's not logical. If I provide logic, people say it's not going to make them change. Yeah. So we need both. Um, in terms of what actually does convince people to start acting in accordance with it, 
Um, it's difficult to say because again, it's, it's difficult for, it's different for different people. But I think that kind of looking at the footage is, is one of the best ways to do it. Now, the, the, like I find it hard to wrap my head around because for me, I remember when I used to see these documentaries, this footage of, of animals suffering and it didn't really do much for me. Mm. Like I looked at it and I thought, this is obviously horrible, but I'm not going to change my life based on this emotional impulse that I'm having. Right. It took me reading the philosophy to change my mind, but I recognize that from what I've learned now, I, that's, I, I'm like a minority yeah. in that, that, <laughs> that, that, that's the kind of thing that convinces me. I've had lots of other friends who like have talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked forever and ever and ever. It's only when they actually sit down and watch land of hope and glory, which is a UK version of earthlings. Essentially. It's only when they sit down and watch those documentaries that they finally change. Um, but there are still people out there, you know, like me, who will only be convinced by what is essentially an ethically consistent logical argument. So I need to make sure that's provided too. I'm, I'm under no illusion that that's going to on its own convince everybody to go vegan. For sure. No, I think what's, it's funny. I, I, you must, you know, you said you're, you're at St. John's right now and you've got a channel of people interested in philosophy and you yourself are very logically oriented. Uh, my own limited experience of humans that are not those YouTubers is, is the emotional appeal <laughs> is is the effective way to go. But I think it's great that you're doing both. Mm. So it. if I hunt wildlife by euthanizing it painlessly in its sleep and then I eat that, you're not opposed to that. That is in line with your ethics. It's like you can be a vegan plus eat animals that you euthanized at night. Uh, I wouldn't... I, I wouldn't see... Um, Sorry, my connection just went a little bit funny, but I think I'm okay. Am I okay? Yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah, we got you. Um, uh, uh, um, your question was about the deer. Hunting at night. So there's, in such there's a, a family oh, yeah. of four yeah. deer, and I walk up and I inject them with the same thing you used to put down a dog that you love. You know, it's, it's mm, painless. Yeah. They just are dead. Uh, there's four of them. They have no family beyond this. And then I eat those deer. So, then there's, no, so there's been no suffering. I would have thought that that's still wrong. I wouldn't want someone to do that to my dog, which is kind of my framework for what... Uh, yeah, but that, that's the key point there, is that you wouldn't want someone to do, to do that to your dog, right? I don't think it would be bad for the dog, right? Like, So this like, is, so this is what I, I'm saying. I, the deer aren't owned by a human, so, I can, yeah, so, so I'm so actually okay to sneak around at night like a ninja, euthanize family of deer, as long as I get the whole family, and then eat those deer. Like, I do it once a year, and then that deer lasts yeah, maybe well, a year. That's the thing. Like, in, in practice, you'd have to kind of fulfill so many qualifications that it would be almost impossible to make sure you're actually doing it in principle though. Cause the, the question you're asking is yeah. interesting because of the principle, like, yeah, I, d I, d I wouldn't really have a problem with it. You know, okay. like as far as I'm concerned, if there's no suffering, there's no problem, right? There, there might be a, Interesting. we need to be consistent here. So as I say, like if we think it'd be wrong to do it to a human or, or other animals like a dog, we should probably think it's wrong to do it to a deer. My own ethical intuitions um, say that it, it wouldn't be bad for the person being killed. Um, potentially the only consideration worth bearing in mind is that it might be in some sense bad for the person who has to do the killing. Like it, it's kind of, it, it creates a, um, a kind of less than, um, uh, less than, less than kind of morally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it, it, sufficient, some stain, yeah, some uh, character with yeah. it, within Why? yourself if you do that action, but like the action in and of itself well, um, why would it create a stain? Why would it wrong? Why would it create well, a stain a, if it's not if it's not a bad thing to do? And it creates if if bad is only suffering and it causes no suffering, why would it be bad to do? Why would it create some sort of character defect? 
Because yeah, I'm causing I, I, no suffering. Oh, because yeah, like like if it so if it doesn't, if it genuinely causes no suffering, then I don't think it's. I, I can't see any reason to think that it would be like morally impermissible. Got it. So then let me ask you this one. There's an old man at the end of his life. He's got very little pleasure left to be had. I sneak up on him. I'm a young guy, lots of pleasure. I love the taste of flesh. I inject him painlessly and then I eat him. Uh, he would have survived another six months to a year. I get a meal. He didn't miss much pleasure. He was kind of a miserable guy. Is that permissible if if conscious awareness of suffering is our only metric well i i think that i think that if it is wrong it's not wrong because of like it's bad for the person that you've killed like i don't think it's bad for the person you've killed so if it is wrong mm -hmm. which is the question we're exploring it must be wrong for some other reason for example there is a trouble with even even the act of saying that this is morally permissible is problematic because of the fact that like if if people become aware that this <laughs> is something that's morally permissible it's going to cause upset. It's going to cause worry as well for people who are in that situation. Um, it's kind of like, you know how people say you wouldn't kill a person because, you know, it's, it's, it would scare everybody else. It's kind of like a kind of more fundamental version of that, which is to say that let's say, no, we're going to qualify it such that anytime this happens, we, we totally make unknown. sure yeah. that this person genuinely, nobody else knows who they are. Um, genuinely no family, genuinely nothing like that. Um, and we're going to kill them, like we might say, yeah, okay, because you've fulfilled all the conditions, it's now okay to do so. Mm -hmm. But the very act of saying that it's okay to do so is going to be problematic, right? So like the, the act qua the act, like the act in itself might not be on a suffering-based worldview, ethically impermissible, but it wouldn't be, <laughs> it wouldn't be permissible to grant yeah. it the status of permissibility. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Like in, in a kind of meta-analysis, although, although like, like, qua the act right in virtue of the act itself you might you, you know someone like me might be committed to saying no it's not wrong it's not sure. wrong to kill that person i could say that like to to grant it permissibility is itself impermissible and for that reason i can't say that it's permissible but right? since animals, does, that, does that make sense yeah, yeah yeah but since animals can't worry your english and worry about that yeah then that's not an issue so as long as yeah, you're so that, taking that out the entire real... family <laughs> And making sure in that there's painless, no suffering in a children. painless yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But then, actually, I because this isn't how I feel. By the way, I just think, I, I have just a different like, axiom here. Yeah, I land. I don't. I see what the problem. I'm walking through. I wonder if there's if this is an insufficient uh, view. Mm -hmm. to, to well, just, it's, it's to only, it's only insufficient if like you're, you're reasoning in reverse. I mean, yes, what are we trying exactly. to do here? Are we, try, are we trying to find an ethical theory that we think is sound and see what it implies? Or are we saying, well, I've got these ethical beliefs that I, that I want to keep. And so if this ethical theory doesn't abide by it, I'm going to throw it out. Yeah, that's not how we should do ethics. Like if it turns out that actually it is okay to kill a family of elk or something, then yeah. That 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 would just be how it is, right? Gonna, we can't I'm, reject an ethical theory. I'm on, the guy that basis turned alone, cosmic skeptic, non-vegan. <laughs> I did it. I can't believe it. I didn't want to be that guy, but I'm yeah, that I, guy. I, you know, like now, now somebody who was about to go out and like hunt some, hunt some deer is actually now going to go and hunt an entire family of deer. I didn't but want and, to be that guy. And to your point, here I am. Go ahead. Sorry, over this, it's getting skippy. Um. I, th I sorry. I, th I think I actually lost you for a second there. No, I, I saw you were about to speak. Um, and you then... were talking about the hunter taking out a whole family of deer. Yeah, sorry. I did. I did just. I I just lost you for a second there. I, I wasn't just kind of trying to sit staring at you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we have to be careful to to stress that in practice such situations don't really arise. You can never actually know 
that you've fulfilled all the conditions such that this genuinely isn't causing any suffering, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so in practice, it doesn't like, <laughs> it, it's not like I'm saying, yeah, it's fine. Go around in the, in the forest mm -hmm. and just kind of hunt deer because of the fact that you're not going to kill them painlessly. It's going to be possible to do that every single time. You're not going to be sure that they don't have, you know, family or whatever who care about them, et cetera, et cetera. You're never going to actually be able to fill those conditions. But on a kind of matter of ethical principle, we can have this interesting conclusion and, and you know, potentially yeah. like some clickbaity title. Uh, Cosmic Skeptic <laughs> admits that it's okay to eat a deer, you know, like in principle, yeah. But like, yeah, there, there are all kinds of, as long as, as long as we make the actual conditions correct, pretty much anything we think is immoral could be permissible in some circumstance. You know, mm -hmm. we would think that murder is okay in some circumstances. Many think people think that torture is okay in some circumstances. If the only way to find out where the bomb is that's about to explode in Manhattan is to torture the person who sure. set it up, most people would, well, a lot of people at least would say, yeah, we can torture them. Even though generally speaking, like, yeah, if if somebody who was who, whose campaign was to bring about an end to torture in war or in you know whatever it may be, like torture is just something that shouldn't be allowed. If you pressed them on this and said, yeah, but if if the bomb was about to go off in New York City, would you torture the person? And they said, look, if all of these conditions were fulfilled, I think this would be morally permissible. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they're still allowed to say that they're against torture, that torture is wrong, that in practice we should never torture people, but like in principle, as a point of kind of ethical principle, we can say that there are circumstances in which it might be permissible. Mm -hmm. um, but in practice, it, do, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter because that's never going to come up. Sure. Sure. And, and, and of course the, the semantics and the labeling is secondary to the, in my opinion, the behavior and, and, mm. and all that stuff. So yeah, well, you did wait, raise one interesting thing, which you said, what are we doing here? Are we, are we creating principles? And I actually realized that what I am doing right or wrong is starting from, I think my most charitable ethical instinct and then trying to universalize that, which is a little bit different than what you're doing. You're 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 a little bit more committed to the logical uh, truth, mm. uh, as it as it were, of of ethics. Um, and it's just interesting. And that's that's I guess why I still land on. Look, I don't. It's not justifiable necessarily. I can't explain why. But you don't you don't kill people even if it's if it's uh, painless yeah. in most situations. The, the, the only thing to bear in mind is this: is that like. If somebody is if somebody's criticizing you, right? Mm -hmm. if, if somebody is coming along and saying, like, I'm someone who wants to eat meat, right? I, I just I don't I don't buy all this vegan stuff. And they start prodding and they start saying, Oh, but come on, man, like, you know, if a deer in the forest, it doesn't mm -hmm. feel any pain, et cetera, et cetera. And you're still kind of clinging to this, like, no, it's still wrong. It's always gonna be wrong. You know, like they they might think like this person's ethical position isn't fully thought thought, mm -hmm. thought through. Right. Because like I, I would it, like when I talk to people and they say, ah, what if the animal feels no suffering? And I say, well, if there's no suffering, there's no problem. You know, if, if a yeah. cow can't suffer, then you can kill the cow. Sure. Like oftentimes their response is to go, huh? Oh, right. Fair enough. Actually, yeah, that does make sense then. Yeah, I can see why you'd think this. That makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, the fact that in practice cows do suffer means that they now think my position is consistent yep. and cows do suffer, so I should probably stop killing them. Whereas if I were to go, no, even if cows couldn't suffer, you still shouldn't kill them because you know they're a cow or whatever, or because for some kind of reason that I couldn't really actually justify, they would be in their rights to say, ah, so your position is kind of grounded on, on nothing. It doesn't actually have any consistency. I'm not going to give you the time of day, right? So we have to actually be honest about the limits of our ethical position here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's in most circumstances, in pretty much any circumstance that you're ever actually going to practically find yourself in, it will be wrong to kill this animal unnecessarily. Um, well, I think but that like to, to say that there's never an exception is to be mm -hmm. myopic about it. Oh, I think the difference is I had uh, 
previously held this position that I, I don't really know how I feel about, which is that in addition to you don't want to cause suffering, there's also the sense of, sure, when I murder someone, they don't know that they've been murdered. But if they were given the choice, they would have chosen to live. And so is it immoral to take something's life knowing that they would have chosen to live, whether that's a human who's old, a family of deer. And so if that is one an, big problem with that. Mm-hmm. There's one. There's one really big problem with that, as far as I can see. You know, that you, mm-hmm. you might have a response, but if we're if we're talking in terms of conditionals, right? Because we're we're essentially saying like this person doesn't exist anymore, right? They don't exist, so there's nothing that can be true of them. But we're saying, but like, if they did exist, you know, in in the possible world in which they do exist, they would prefer to live. No, and when, that gives me an obligation not to kill them. The moment before I killed them, right. they wanted to live, and I and I overruled that okay. desire. So that that's slightly different. Although there is still there is still a, a a problem, which is that we're now kind of trying to ground ethics in desire fulfillment, right? And and the question is, is it like, is it harmful to a person to have their desires go unfulfilled if they're not aware that those desires have gone unfulfilled? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the person before they before they die want to continue living, and that desire they have is is violated but if they don't know the desire is violated is it bad for them and there are a few ways to explore this question for example um there is a imagine that you're on a train right and you meet a stranger on the train who's sat next to you on the train and you just strike up a conversation and it turns out that they've got a very dangerous operation happening next week and you know there's a 20 percent chance that it's going to kill them it's going to be horrible and painful and tragic and you think to yourself, damn, like I, I, I want this person's operation to go well. Like I care about this person, right? And they get off the train. You never got their name. You're never going to hear from them again. No way to contact them. But you have this very real desire that their operation goes well, right? Now let's say that their operation goes horribly. They, they, they die in a horrible accident. It's horribly painful. The question is, is that bad for you? Right? Your desire has gone unfulfilled. It's been violated, right? Like mm-hmm. you had this desire that this person has a successful operation. They didn't, but you you will never ever know that that's the case. Is it mm-hmm. bad for you that their operation went wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an. Inter- I I would say my my initial response, having not thought about it too deeply, is that uh, no, it is not bad for you. And and it seems that what this thought process does is it separates the desirer from the person who who suffered the the death. Um, well, it's interesting. Yeah, what it shows is that like it's not just about kind of having the desire kind of violated that's bad. It's mm-hmm. you have to like be aware that your desire has not been fulfilled. So if someone has a desire to continue living before they die and then they die, they're not aware that that desire has gone unfulfilled. So in the same way that it's not bad for the person on the train because yeah, their desire has gone unfulfilled, but they don't know about it. Well, the person who wanted not to die isn't aware that their desire goes unfulfilled when they die. And so it can't be bad for them either. No, it's interesting because, and I don't think you'll think this is bad. If you already eat slaughterhouse meat, this ethic will take you closer to being a vegan. As someone who doesn't at the moment eat mammals, it's taken me further from vegan because now we've we've identified a condition (laughs) in which it's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not bad. No, it's not bad. Because basically what you're saying is you came over and I was eating venison. You would be like, okay, if this was if this was because you killed an entire family in their sleep with a knife to the throat. Then I guess I'll have some, too. And then the two of us could eat venison together in practice. I I, I would stress that in practice, like that wouldn't 
that those conditions probably wouldn't be fulfilled such that I'd be like, actually, yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was a fine thing to do, but like, mm-hmm. you're right. Um, but I'll, I'll just tr- like remind you and remind your listeners that the definition of veganism is a minimization to the highest extent practicable of all forms of animal suffering. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that like it, like if you're, if you're kind of not causing suffering to an animal, mm. then what you're doing isn't non-vegan because veganism, veganism is about minimizing suffering. Got it. So if you're killing an animal that genuinely doesn't, suffer from it, then you couldn't be like, well, this is moving me away from veganism because, you know, I I'm, yeah. can kill this animal now. No, it's not because killing that animal in that circumstance would be a vegan thing to do because veganism is about suffering. And if that animal can't suffer, suffer, then it's not non-vegan to kill them. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. I don't think you are actually moving away from veganism. I think you're just kind of um, beginning to like redefine more, veganism more, more. Yeah. More like refine in a more refined sense, understand what I mean when I say vegan. Cool. You, would you eat eggs? Like, well, uh, if there was just animals that were laying eggs in the wild and those, the eggs couldn't turn into babies. Oh, uh, well, if they were just laying them and we were literally just kind of like, if we happen across them in the forest. Yeah. Or something, yeah, yeah. We're like on a walk them, and we just find then, it. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Okay, I don't see a problem with that. I've actually, I mean, I've got, it's really funny. I made a, I made a TikTok not long ago, um, about backyard chicken farming. Cause people were like, what, what's the problem with having chickens in my backyard? And I basically said, look, it still matters where you got the chickens from because you probably bought them from like a breeder. Um, they're still probably laying way more eggs than they would do naturally in the wild. So it's very painful for them. So you shouldn't be breeding them, exploiting them for that purpose. You should probably feed the eggs back to them to replenish the nutrients, which is yep. what um, sanctuaries tend to do. I then at the end said, but look, like if you've, if you've got these chickens, you're not breeding them and your principal reason for holding them is to look after them. Not It's not like a principal reason is eating the eggs and you happen to look after them. Your principal reason is looking after them. You feed their eggs back to them to replenish the nutrients. But it's also the case that you are just going to have some eggs that go spare, you know, because these eggs are going to be hatched. These eggs are, are going to be produced um, uh, and they're just going to be there and you're already feeding the other eggs back to the chicken and whatever. Like, then yeah, I, I can't see why it would be wrong to eat them, right? Interesting. Um, can I ask, now, of course, can I ask one point of clarification? Like, but there's, there's an argument to say that, like, sorry, did, did you say something? Yeah, sorry. I have one, one question of clarification mm-hmm. is, you mentioned uh, a moment of intention, which is your principal reason for having them. Is that actually mm-hmm. important? Like, what if my principal reason is to get the eggs, but I fulfill all the other conditions from a consequentialist standpoint? I, am, I give them the eggs, yeah. I do all of that other stuff. Is the reason... It, it, important. It's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong for like second order reasons, which is to say like, it's not kind of wrong in itself, so to speak. But if your intention is not the welfare of the animal primarily, then you're more likely to kind of accidentally, um, you know, abuse that or, um, you're, you're, you're more likely to kind of miss when you're doing something that's harming them without realizing it. Right. Got it. If your primary intention is, is the care of the animal, then that's what's important. So what what I said was that like, so, so long as like, the, the the only qualifier is that if you do eat that egg, you might be like normalizing the idea that it's okay to eat eggs. That might have an effect in terms of the image you're promoting or whatever. For like so for like for for non for indirect reasons, it might still be a bad idea to eat the egg. But the actual act of eating that egg is not immoral. Of course, it's not right. Mm-hmm. And I said this on a TikTok. And like, I was getting responses from people online saying, this guy isn't a, an ally of the animals. He's this disgusting animal exploiter abuser. And I was looking at him thinking, my God, like, do you not understand that if our position isn't actually ethically consistent, nobody's going to take it seriously. Of mm. course, there is nothing wrong if you're walking through the forest and like, you know, 
like a pregnant cow was being fed on by its calf and the calf spat out some of the milk and it just happens <laughs> to be laying on the floor and you scoop it up and shove it down your gullet. Of course, that's not immoral. Like, come on, like, like, let's be real, you know? Um, so, so yeah, to answer your question, like in those circumstances, like it's, it, it's not wrong. The thing that's wrong isn't eating an animal product or eating an animal or eating a bit of meat. The thing that's wrong is causing the suffering. Right? Yep. It's not the act of eating the egg or even the act of eating the flesh. It's the, it's the process by which that was brought about. It's the fact that you have to kill an animal to bring it about. It's the fact that you have to cause suffering to an animal to get eggs from the egg industry. That's why you don't eat the eggs. It's not because eating the egg in and of itself is is a is an immoral thing to do. You know. Yep. Yeah. I think that what I'm going to noodle on because this is fresh to me and I, I need time to to sit on it is should suffering defined as you did as a conscious experience of that be my sole ethical coordinator or am I justified and unable to articulate whatever else is is in there and even if it's not is it still a good thing for me just to hold on to these like ghosts of ethical <laughs> of ethical uh, reasons yeah. that, that perhaps make me behave in a, in a kinder way you, you just have to be you just have to beware that anything that you do identify other than suffering that you mm -hmm. think might be irrelevant just make sure that it doesn't actually technically just break down to suffering you know yep. Um, because that, that's one of the mistakes that people often make. They, they talk about like how, no, there are like, you know, I like to consider virtue. Mm -hmm. I like to consider, you know, rights because rights seem to conflict with, um, consequentialism. Um, because, you know, if you have a, if you have a right to life, then, yep. you know, if it happens that it's going to cause less suffering to kill this person, like if you want to believe in rights, then consequentialism doesn't work, but you'll actually realize that maybe like the reason we have rights in the first place is ultimately to avoid suffering in the long run. Yep. Um, something like that. You have to make sure that it doesn't just break down suffering. Cause you might want to say, okay, I, I care about suffering and I care about human rights, but maybe human rights are actually just grounded in suffering in the first place. Right. Interesting. So you've got to be careful that that's not what's happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. This is a good little moral pickle for me to to, I'm excited too. I'm going to look up what mammals don't attach to families. <laughs> what mammals, if killed solo, have no family? Or just go on, go on walks in the woods looking for eggs. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, thought, yeah, like, I thought about like opening up a restaurant on the side of a busy road and just kind of waiting to find out what the special of the day was going to be. There you go. When, right. uh, when, the, when the roadkill road kill special. Uh, is there, you know, there, there, are, there, are maybe, there are maybe ways, ways around this. Um, yes. But I, I think that the key thing to take home is that, like, you know, is, is that final point that, that, when we say eating meat is wrong, that's not what we mean. Eating meat is wrong is a proxy for saying causing unnecessary harm to an animal is wrong. Yeah. But you know, if every single animal in the world died right now instantly, such that there were going to be no more generations because they can't be because there's no one to breed them. Like, and we were just left with a bunch of dead carcasses. Would yeah. it be wrong to eat those carcasses? No, mm -hmm. of course it, like, it wouldn't be because it wouldn't, mm -hmm. wouldn't be harming any animals at that yeah. point. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's like, yeah, the product is already there. Yep. The reason you shouldn't eat it isn't just because it's a piece of meat. It's because by buying it, you're paying for this to continue. Yep. How you're demanding you, economically that it yep. happen again. Um, that's what's wrong. The act itself is, is not what's wrong. How do you think about, and this is just something that happens in our, where we grew up in the suburbs of uh, Pennsylvania, the, there's this concept that for whatever reason, the way that, that humans have messed with the ecosystem, deer's natural predators are not around. And if deer are not hunted, they're overpopulation will cause a lot of problems with the ecosystem, a lot of starvation for the deer. And so what happens in our area is it's, I believe, illegal to hunt deer except for, for one week or one or two weeks in the year, basically at the apex of whatever this overpopulation occurs. Hunting is allowed. I think there's a limit to how many deer are killed. And then, and then it's illegal again, such that we are doing population control 
that should have been being done by wolves and coyotes, but we've just kind of killed them in the name of, you know, mm, strip paving, paving yeah. roads, yeah. making strip malls, creating suburban uh, cul-de-sacs. So that's the justification of the practice as far as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, have you encountered, have you ever heard of that, first of all, and do you have a thought around it? I want to make sure I'm understanding the argument. Are you, are you talking about kind of like hunting being beneficial to the ecosystem? Well, this is specifically in our area. There's, yes, the mm -hmm. sense that if you if you didn't do the hunt, then there would be overpopulation issues. Yeah. You need you all the grass, starve to death, then, and then the other the, things you need the grass. It would, and it yeah. would cause, and that apparently, whoever makes the laws has come on board and said that this would be a big problem if, if we did allow this to happen. So mm -hmm. hunt them for this limited time period. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the first thing is a lot of these problems are human created in the first place. I mean, the ecosystem was doing fine before we kind of sure. began meddling with this in this way. And so to say that, like, us refraining from continuing to meddle in it is, is problematic is a, is, a, is a little strange. I mean, did, did you know, for instance, that there are, uh, I think it's around 3,000, my number might be slightly wrong, but there are around 3,000 um, uh, deer farms in the United States, which are breeding deer into existence for the purpose of being hunted. Like, hunting, the, the idea that hunting is kind of, uh, motivated by um, provision of the ecosystem or, or uh, preserving of the ecosystem is is often, I think, not entirely accurate. There's also problems involving things like uh, that, like predators naturally will eat the the weak and the aged and the diseased animals, mm. whereas hunters tend to go for the biggest mm. and the strongest. You know which actually kind of disrupts the process of evolution because what we end up doing is like in, in nature, so to speak, you know, predators are killing the weak, which means that as the predators get faster, the prey gets faster, everything kind of evolving, balancing itself out. Mm -hmm. If we're going in and kind of shooting all of the big, all of the big boys and kind of shooting them instead of shooting the, the disease and the aged, then we're actually disrupting that flow such that now like we're going to cause more imbalance. I think we're actually causing more harm with the kind of hunting practices that we're, that we're using then we're, then we're actually um, contributing to the environment. I would recommend there is a, there's a great video that you can watch that will, that condenses a lot of information specifically as, as regards to like ecosystem protection and hunting that was made by my friend, Ed Winters, who is Earthling Ed on YouTube. Mm -hmm. You probably, yeah, probably know the guy. Um, he made a video responding to Joe Rogan about this exact point. Cause Joe Rogan was talking all about the kind of things that you're talking about. And Ed essentially just dismantled the guy and he does a much better job of that than than I do or I would. I also, I, I don't know what the situation mm -hmm. is actually like in Pennsylvania. I'm not familiar with these laws. So I wouldn't be able to kind of speak um, authoritatively on them. What I would say is this, like if it is genuinely true and that it causes less suffering, right? Remember a vegan is still responsible for animal suffering. When I eat plants, animals are suffering. Yeah. What I'm, the reason I still eat them is because I say that by, by eating them, by, by essentially by killing these animals to produce these plants and eating the plants, I'm causing less animal suffering in the long run. If it is genuinely true that by hunting these animals, it causes less animals, animal suffering, then I think it would be the vegan thing to do. Got right? it. Got it. Like, but you, but it, the skepticism, it would be as simple as that. I, I, think I, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't want to say something like, no, it's still wrong because of this yeah, reason yeah. or that reason or that reason. I'm just saying that like, I don't think it is actually true right. that it causes less suffering, but if it did, yeah, that Got would it. be a vegan thing to do. So, the, And the main thing is to have some skepticism around the people who are giving you this information may not be coming from a pure philosophical place. And, and so you have to make sure that yeah. this is actually how the math works out and not just something being used to justify something they want to do. In the same way, you don't want a vegan to just start with, we can't eat animals. You don't want them to start with, 
let's justify hunting deer. Yeah. So you just have to make sure to the best of your ability that the math yeah. works out such that you're actually contributing to decreasing suffering. Yeah. I, I've just found, I, I just um, clicked on a, 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 a document I had here to check that number. It's actually 4,000 deer farms in the United States where deer are artificially bred into existence. Mm. Um, I'm also kind of looking at notes here about like, uh, uh, practices like there's, there's a practice called clear cutting in which state wildlife management agencies that will cut down large expanses of forest on public lands in order to create edge habitat that's favored by deer um, in order to kind of have more deer so that hunters can go and can go and hunt them. Like yeah. I, I, for, for every example you can give of like hunting benefiting the ecosystem, you can give as many and probably more examples of ways in which people are actually breeding these animals into existence. If we're worried about overpopulation, then why are we breeding them into existence for the purposes of hunting? Mm -hmm. It's also clear to me that like on a more trivial basis, this isn't what's motivating most hunters. Like people like to say when they go out and shoot an animal that they're doing it because they care about the environment. You know, like I've never seen a hunter on Facebook take a picture with his gun, like next to a recycling bin, mm -hmm. right? It's like, that's, that's, that's not what they're, that's not what they're actually motivated mm -hmm. by. Um, I'm sure if that was actually the principal concern, then we could have a very serious discussion about like, you know, whether, whether, hunting is actually a, a viable thing in certain situations, but we would have to recognize that it would be like a necessary evil. We would kind of be going into the wild and essentially seeing it as euthanizing these animals, mm -hmm. killing these animals in the most painless way we possibly can and being very solemn and sad about it. We wouldn't be going and shooting them in the lung, taking Got a it. picture with them and saying, you know, F yeah on Facebook. Like um, a I think dog shelter. Yeah. It needs to be rethought. Yeah. So, well, I was thinking of the Maui venison people because that is what they do. But I think his point, which is, is that you would not place the moral core on intention. But what you're saying is if your intention is not pure, you are inevitably going to create suffering because you are being driven by other considerations and then backwards rationalizing why. So well, we the, assumed their intentions weren't pure. We would have to happened. know. We would have to know. And I'd be willing to bet that they would not shut down their business. You know what I mean? I don't think they're planning on going out of business. I don't think they're there to help the deer. And my honest to God, I think they're looking for ways to get people meat. I don't think that's a crazy guess. So the, what we're talking about, just to catch you up, is that there's yeah. these people who hunt an invasive species, a company of deer in mm -hmm. Hawaii, and they bill it as ethical meat. And we've really yeah, kicked yeah, this yeah. one around a lot. Oh, they shouldn't be there. But what I'm landing on and we've talked to is that they're not out there to euthanize deer. They're out there to sell beef cutlets and such. Yeah, like, like you know, you can think of the business model. We're, we're, we're a bunch of people sitting around and saying, Hey man, like I really want to help the wildlife. I know. Let's start killing them and selling them to me. Or do they say, <laughs> Hey man, I I really want to like you know sell meat, but you know there are some ethical concerns. I know. Yeah. Let's you know frame it as an ethical version of euthan euthanasia. But of course, like it, it isn't particularly relevant in that even if all wildlife agencies were actually motivated by like kind of evil ulterior motives or whatever it may be, like if it genuinely is actually helping, mm -hmm. then, you know, the fact that their motivations are impure yep. wouldn't change the fact that it would be like the right thing to be doing. What I would say, I mean, I, when, when, uh, you guys first reached out, uh, in the original email, uh, it was kind of mentioned by name as this issue of like hunting and yeah. ecosystems and stuff. And I, I, I basically replied as I'm replying now, which is to say like, you know, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, right? Mm. So I can say, if you give me a situation, I can tell you what I ethically think of it. What I can't really do is, is tell you whether that situation actually, um, actually holds, right. right? Like I can't tell you whether or not this, the hunting situation in Pennsylvania is it's, genuinely more yeah. harmful or more good. I would bet that it's more harmful from yep. what I've seen 
elsewhere, but I couldn't say that with certainty. But what I can say is the ethical conditional statement that if it causes, if, if it actually minimizes suffering, then I think we should be doing it. But that's, that's the question that needs to be answered. Yep. Is it genuinely doing what they're saying it's doing? And most of the time, you'll find that it's not. We got to have the CEO of the, <laughs> of the Maui Venison Company on, man. It'd be interesting. We got to do it. Maybe we'll have you on too. <laughs> Just let you guys talk while we listen. Well, you know, I, I would, you know, maybe, although I would also say, like, I, I would stress that if you're interested in, like, the actual practicalities of this kind of stuff, of, like, ecosystems and 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 hunting and, and the ethics of veganism, like, I'm not your guy here. Earthling Ed is your guy on on, on that stuff. Right, like, we're gonna that, get- that video that I mentioned in particular for your audience, if, if they're interested in this, I'd highly recommend going and listening to that. Um, it was very well received, even from, like, the pro hunting side because they recognized it was a very intelligent argument to make and anything that i would say would essentially be a, a, a less eloquent rehashing yeah. of that um but yeah like ethically my points stand but if you're interested in those practicalities i couldn't recommend his work enough yeah well, awesome dude earthling ed and the ceo of i'm serious i <laughs> want to hear him, i want to hear him talk <laughs> well alex thank you so much man i know your camera is probably dying but i just want to say uh give you a chance to talk about your own channel but i've i've been watching on and off for a while if any of our viewers like the philosophical stuff we do, Alex is doing it much more consistently and much more philosophically <laughs> than, than we are. Um, so if you want to check out his channel, it's Cosmic Skeptic. You've got you've had a couple of uh, really interesting, I guess, conversations with big names as well that that are fascinating to break down. I think you do a great job there. So if any of our fans are interested, please, we'll put a link in the description. Go check them out. Anything else that you want to uh, shout out about your channel or anything like that? Um, I have a Patreon. Oh, there we go. No, I'm, Give I'm him some I'm money, kidding. baby. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I, that's very kind of you to say. I, yeah, I, I started this, I essentially started a podcast, but decided to make it infrequent and just put it on the main channel mm-hmm. as and when things came up. So I've been really lucky to have some great conversations with some really interesting, uh, really interesting people. So yeah, people are interested in that. Um, check it out. There's nothing else I can, I can really add, except that I'm now also on TikTok uh, <laughs> for some reason, because I, I, I kind of had this account where... Uh, I'm at ask a vegan where I basically respond to people's questions about veganism. And one of these videos not long ago, for some reason blew up and got like 2 million views and it suddenly gave me a, a platform there. Um, but I wouldn't, I can't say I'd actually recommend going in and seeking that out. Cause TikTok is, you know, uh, let's just say it's not the best place for rational discussions about the intricacies <laughs> of the vegan ethic. I'm shocked. I never would have guessed the TikTok comments wouldn't be the place. Well, Alex, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate you uh, staying up late to talk to us. You got it, guys. It's good fun. Thank you. Beautiful. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.